Okay, the book of Numbers. The thing about the book of Numbers that makes it hard, and some of you picked up on this intuitively, is that look at all these parts along the bottom here. The, the microstructure is really complicated. So that commentators are just like, I just don't know what to do with this. This is like a total mishmash of this we, we have this story, then we have this group of laws, and then we have this uh, sort of drop of stats on me, and then I'm back to a narrative, then I'm into laws that, that I thought we already learned about that, and now we're talking about the Passover. So like, if you're trying to make a structure out of the book of Numbers based on the microstructure, the little things that happen, it's almost impossible. You just have like a 56 list structure. But what's really helpful is the macrostructure is very clean. There's three locations, three camps, and there's tr two travel sections. So you're at Mount Sinai for, for the first 10 chapters. Middle of chapter 10, you, you go on a journey. The cloud lifts from the tabernacle, and we're off, and we're going to uh, Paran. We get to Paran. Glory cloud comes down, and we're there from chapter 13 through 19. And then the cloud lifts, and we're, we're traveling again for tw cha chapters 20 and 21. And then we land in Moab, which brings us right up to the eve of the conquest in the book of Joshua. See, the book of Deuteronomy is just a number, a number of sermons that takes place right here in chapters 34 and 36. So next week, we're going to see that Moses, while they're in Moab, gives them a set of his last words, a set of sermons. And they take those sermons. That's the book of Deuteronomy. We're basically, we'll do this next week, but, or in two weeks' time. Moses recounts their history, retells them the law, and says, get into the land. That's Deuteronomy. So, so we're really close to the, the plot climax of the Torah by the end of the book of Numbers. So macrostructure is key. Microstructure, difficult. What I love about the book of Numbers is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Paul is writing... I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's all the book of Numbers. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Macro, like what in the big picture, what Paul is saying is what we're going through is not that different from what they're going through. We're on a journey, and the Christian life is paralleled by Israel's experience in the wilderness. This is hard. It's hard to have faith, 
It's hard not to be sexually immoral. It's hard not to grumble. It's hard not to be an idolater. It's hard to keep the faith. But take heed of the warnings of the Israelites. They saw greater things than we have seen. And yet most of them didn't make it. What's frightening about this is the visible church is made up of believers and unbelievers. How many people from a ratio perspective are saved in the visible church? How many will make it? I, I, I hope that Wayne is right. I hope that our ratio is better than 603,000 to two. But scripture does say that this was written down for our instruction. So even if the ratio is not exact, it seems like there could be a lot of people in the church, the visible church, that don't make it, that fall in the wilderness because of these very kinds of things. Which is why as a pastor, I, I preach my guts out and it's not always nice or fun because my goal is that we make it, that we get into the eternal promised land. I, and it's, not, it's very secondary to be liked. The, the primary concern of Moses, the primary concern of any elder, shepherd, pastor, preacher has to be get your people into the land. Now, if we take that, this is what's amazing. The Torah is the gospel. So we start in Exodus in slavery in Egypt, right? And we know according to the gospel that all of human be beings are enslaved to sin. We know that they were delivered from slavery in Egypt through the blood of a Passover lamb. You put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintels, the destroyer comes, passes over, and you're delivered from your slavery. And we know from Scripture, we went through this in Exodus, that the crucifixion of Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. We apply his blood to our lives by faith. And so we're delivered from our slavery to sin. The people went from slavery and sin to delivered. They went and they were baptized, as Paul just said over here. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. That is, they went through the Red Sea. They were baptized. Their deliverance from slavery was sealed by passing through water. That's why we believe in believers' baptism. Do you see the parallels? They're striking. It's, it's sequential. And then they go to Mount Sinai and to enter into covenant to, with God. And what do we find out? When we are baptized through the water, we are declaring that we are going to the new Jerusalem. We enter into the new covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Now let's just skip over to the book of Numbers at the very end of the Torah. So they go from Mount Sinai to the wilderness to Moab. And at the very end, they're poised on the edge of the promised land. And Joshua takes them into the promised land. It just happens to be that our Savior's name is Joshua, Yeshua. And we call him Jesus because it's the Greek way of saying Joshua. So Joshua takes us into the eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. It's the whole gospel, which means that the book of Numbers, this wilderness wandering, fits in the gospel, in the Christian life. We have been delivered from our slavery to sin. We have put the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, uh, to our lives by faith. We've been baptized as believers. We are in the new covenant with God through Christ. And now we are not in heaven. Now 
We are not in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we still wrestle with our flesh. We're still in a world that is very difficult to live in. The wilderness was really difficult to live in. So the book of Numbers should be a really important book to Christians because it, more than any other book in the Torah, for sure, but maybe any other book in the Old Testament is about us. So the, the very things that challenged Israel in the wilderness are going to challenge us. In the book of Deuteronomy, again, a little preview for a couple weeks from now, we're told that the wilderness season, the wilderness wandering was meant to humble the people, to test the people, and to cause the people to cry out in faith. And they failed. Which is why Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, the wilderness time. Well, I won't say much more about that. I'm getting ahead of myself. But isn't that cool? So go back and read the book of Numbers again, or listen now to what I'm going to present to you with, with those ears. This is about our life. So, back to the macro structure. We're going to go through a lot of this fairly quickly because I want to give you a broad overview and I'll just sort of touch on the parts that I think are really important for, for us as we go. So we're going to start in the Mount Sinai section. That's chapters 1 through 10, verse 10. And we start with the censuses. Just really riveting stuff. Numbering the Exodus generation. But, you know, okay, now think about what I just said. The, this first census is of the people who were delivered by the blood of a Passover lamb. These are the people that were numbered among the congregation. The equivalent of this is if you could literally take the roster of every Christian church in the world, all of their membership rosters, and count them up. That's what this is. And you're not asking, are they saved or not? You're just trying to figure out, are they showing up? Are, are they there so if we could do that, we could figure out how many people in the universal church right now in the world, and we're not worried about who's going to make it to the promised land or not. We're just trying to figure out who claims to be a Christian. So that's what this is. And that picture there, that reminds us that God had promised Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This was 430 years previous to this census. In 430 years, through the gift of slavery, because probably Israel would not be a nation if they weren't confined to slavery. It forced the, the creation of a national identity, right? So within those four centuries, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham and multiplying him. So from one man who was 100 years old before he, he conceived in his wife the child of promise... We now have 603, 550,000 men 20 years and over from 12 tribes. Not too bad in 430 years. That's 2 million people. 2 million people came out of Egypt. But 603,548 of these men died in the wilderness. Only two listed in this census. 
entered into the promised land. That's not very good statistic. Especially if this is about the membership role of the visible church on the earth. And I suppose to make this real, it's not just now. If you could take 2,000 years worth of data of who has claimed to be a Christian, maybe the, maybe the ratio is about right. I don't know. But the theological point, is, I don't think, is the, the detailed math as much as, like, look at how many people didn't make it. Remember, the promised land is the new heavens and the new earth, typologically. This, this should terrify us, if not for ourselves, for our church. And if you aspire to leadership, this is this census keeps you up at night because you're thinking about the men, women, and children in your church that you love. So that's the census. And we're reminded of what Paul said, nevertheless. So all of these people, 603 plus thousand, all of them came out, all of them were in the cloud. That's a cloud, God's glory cloud. All of them were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So whether the ratio is right, I think, if, I, if I'm right, what Scripture is telling us here, what Paul is saying is with most people who claim to be Christians over the 2,000 plus years of the church, whose names might even be on a membership roll somewhere, with most of them, God will not be pleased. And many of them will be overthrown in the wilderness, which is this life. That, that's sobering. So evangelism has to continue inside the church. That's the first census. Now we move on and, and we get all this information about the camps. So we find out, that, I love this picture because it gives you sort of a bird's eye view. I personally don't make much of the cross shape. See, this is one of those examples of is it compelling, is it not compelling? I don't think it's compelling because... It, it looks more like an X to me than a cross. And some of you say, well, Jesus was crucified on a cross. It was an X. Well, maybe, maybe not. But there's no textual data that suggests that the intention of this was, was to, to, to create a cross. I think the point is God is in the middle and the people are all around. So you would have to find more reason to say, look at the cross. So I don't, I don't think that's what it is. But the point is, God is in the middle. God is dwelling with his people, and he's organized his people meticulously around him with three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west. And so to the east, we have uh, the camp of Judah, which includes, where are we here? Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. To the south, we have the camp of Reuben, which includes Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Then in the middle, we have the tabernacle. To the west, we have the camp of Ephraim, which is Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. And then to the north, we have Dan, which is Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. So why is it Dan, Judah, um, Reuben, and Ephraim? It's because they were the tribes in char at the head of each of those sections. So this is the order. So you'd camp around the tabernacle, and then when the glory cloud lifted, they would go on, on a parade, basically, where it would be the three tribes of the east, then the three tribes of the south, then the Levites with all the stuff of the tabernacle, then the tribes of the west, then the tribes to the north. It was all meticulously ordered. Yeah, 
That's a really good question because we know when the kingdom splits, the southern kingdom is called Judah and the northern kingdom is called Ephraim. So I think so. Which came first? Did God honor those two tribes because of those two men? Perhaps. Well, we do know that Judah was pre-configured. Yeah, that, I think there's something to it. Yeah. I don't think there's any detail that's like, whoa, God didn't think that through and have like some significance to it. But there's a lot of people who are like, well, that means nothing. I, th- I think it means something. I just don't know what it means. Yeah. So what is this camp all about? So we come out here. What is that all about? Rather than seeing the cross, what I would like to see is the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 1-4 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God is setting up, even here in the wilderness, a little picture, a little foretaste of what it's going to be for us to dwell with God forever and ever. God will be in our midst, and we're going to dwell around him. Look at this. The details get even more staggering. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. This is Revelation 21, 10 to 27. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes, the sons of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. Now, who do you think is inscribed on the east gates, the west gates, the north gates and the south gates? God's setting up a permanent camp in the new heavens and the new earth that is exactly pre-configured in the camp in the wilderness. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it's this, only it's going to include all of us who've been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Its length, its width, and its height are equal. What's cool about this is the city that comes down is a perfect cube. And what do we know about perfect cubes? What's that? <laughs> that was a scientific something? <laughs> The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. So we have the New Jerusalem is not the Holy of Holies, it's holy, 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 of which the Holy of Holies is just a a picture. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So going back to what we see in the camp, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle. Why? Because the, the whole thing is the temple of God. And so whatever distinction there is in the wilderness, there's the tabernacle in the middle, which has the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and a lot of um, obstacles to get into God's presence. The, the great advantage that we're going to have is we have the same setup with a city with, with three gates on each side, and we're all camped around, except there's nothing to prevent us from walking right into the throne room of God and looking at him in holy, holy, holy. We won't read any more of that. So now we move to another census. This is the first census of the Levites. Um, 
just look at that. That's just a lot of numbers, right? So they, they numbered the clans into three clans, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Marathites. The, Mar- the Merarites, sorry, the Merarites. And then there's families associated with each clan. So the, the Levites are divided into three, ca- category, three groups, and then each one of them has their leader, and then we get a census of all of the, the men one month and the older, so all of the male people, so not just men. And so we get those numbers. It comes down to, th- the numbers don't add up. Don't ask me why. I just don't have, t- I didn't have time to check into that. Um, but it comes to 22,000, even though if you add those three numbers together, it doesn't. And then it, they, they did a census of all the men, 30 to 50 years of age, and that came to 8,580. Why the two different censuses? Does anyone remember? Yes, so for 30 to 50, Levites had to work in, in the service of the tabernacle for those 20 years, or 21 years, and there was 8,580 men to do the work of the tabernacle. That included setting it up, taking it down, and then making sure the showbread was looking good and all that, and, and offering the sacrifices. I guess it was Aaron and his sons that were in the holy place, not the Levites themselves. So, so, but there's a lot of manual labor to be moving, and we're going to see the itinerary. They had to set up, take down, set up, take down, set up, take down. It took a lot, a lot of muscle to do that. Why the men one month old and older? Because the 10th plague in Egypt was that the firstborn of every house should die. What we're going to find out is they do a census later of all of the firstborn men in Israel at the time of the first Passover, and it comes to 22,273 or something. And so God says, well, I'm going to take these 22,000 men in place of the firstborn that I didn't kill, and they're going to they're going to redeem you by serving me and not having an inheritance of land. And then for the 273, I don't know if it's that number, but it's around there, extra, you're going to offer me a year's wages for each one. You're going to buy the life of your sons, and you're going to give that money to the Levites. God is so precise. They're, they're, he's just. Yeah, he delivered his people, but the plague was the firstborn will die, so you've got to redeem them. There's a picture of Jesus redeeming us, which is great. It's the priest that redeems the people. And then these, oh, I should say also, so then they each had different things. The Gershonites looked after all of the, the fabric of the tabernacle, the tents, the courtyard, everything. And then you had the uh, Mer- Merarites who did all the structural pieces. So the Ark of, uh, no, sorry, the the pegs and the, the footings of the tent in the courtyard. And then the Kohathites looked after all the holy items. So the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, and um, the, the table, the altar, the bronze laver, the altar of incense. So everyone has a job. God is meticulous in the details. And this is, they also camp around the tabernacle in a particular way. Moses and Aaron and their sons and their families live at the entrance of the tabernacle to guard it, and then everyone else is around. Okay, moving on. Now we come to chapters 5 through 6, which is a number of laws. All unclean people have to go outside the camp. This is just awful for 21st century Canadians. What? So somebody has a skin disease and you boot them out of the city? Yeah. It seems, it seems unkind. It, it seems unfair. So your, your wife gives birth and you have to 
take her out of the camp? Yes. It just doesn't seem right. Now, they would have probably set up some accommodations outside of camp, right? But it was the unclean place where people had to go. Why? Well, let's go back. Remember, we talked about Revelation 21, about dwelling with God, and we find out here, he was seated on the throne, said, this is Revelation 21, 5 to 8, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It's done. Go down to verse 8. So, or verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It, unclean people, so, uh, usually by no fault of their own, symbolize the people who haven't been sanctified, who aren't clean to approach God. And so, because remember, we're, God is creating a typological world. He's trying to teach us about the end through the experience of his people in the Torah. And so you can't have unclean people in the camp because there aren't unclean people in the new heavens and the new earth. So God cares about the typology. And then here, nothing unclean will ever enter in. That is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you have to understand this law of keeping the people outside of the camp on the typological level. Don't look for moral justice, but look for typological fulfillment. There's also laws about restitution. So what if you steal something? You've got to pay it back, give it back, and pay back more. How do you discern adultery? Really strange chapter, which we're not going to get into right now. You have to, like, have the, your, if you're jealous, you have your wife drink water and dust, and if she cramps up and her bowels fall and she's in terrible pain, then she's guilty, and you can stone her. If not, then you've got, you have to just take her back. It's just, it's just weird. Um, but then you have the Nazarite vow, on how to dedicate yourself to God, and then the priestly blessing. Like God even gives instructions, how, does the, how are the priests to bless the people? All of this reminds us that God is very much in control. He's in charge, and he sets the terms of relationship with him. Then we come to the Passover, or sorry, the, con the consecration of the cult, so remember, for us, we've done a lot of reading, and it seems like we're way down the road from when the, the tabernacle was built. But remember, the tabernacle was built at the end of Exodus. We have one plot point in the book of Leviticus, and now we're in the book of Numbers. So on a plot level, we're, we're just... The, the tabernacle's been built. The glory of God has filled it. Moses can't get in. We've got all of the rules for how to use the tabernacle in Leviticus, but only one day has happened in Leviticus where the priests were ordained and Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. And now we pick up again. So not a lot of time has passed, so we need to still consecrate the cult. Remember, cult's not a dirty word. This just means the religious machinery of the nation. So it starts with this, uh, the, the tribes of Israel bring six wagons and 12 oxen to Moses, and Moses gives them to the Ger Gershonites and the Merarites. I can't say that name very well. Why? Because the Kothites have to carry the holy things on poles on their shoulders. So they don't need any oxen, they don't need any wagons. But the Gershonites and the Merarites, I think that's a typo, 
um, they have the tents and the, the bases of the, the tabernacle structure. They don't need to carry it. They're, those aren't as holy, so they can load up these wagons, which is good for them. When we get to 1 Samuel, we're going to see, or 2 Samuel, David tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem on a wagon. Should have read the book of Numbers. No wagons for the Kohathites, right? Just note that. See, these details help you to interpret later what's going on. So when Uzo tries to catch it, well, th they shouldn't have been put on a cart in the first place. So it's sloppiness on David's part. Okay, so that's a gift from the tribes to the Levites. Then we come to consecrating the altar. So this is what Justin was talking about. Twelve days, every tribe has a leader who brings exactly the same thing as the day before. So every day, there's one plate, one silver plate, and one basin of, uh, one silver basin, both filled with fine flour. There's one gold dish filled with incense. There's one bull, one ram, and one male lamb for a burnt offering. There's three grain offerings. There's one male goat for a sin offering. And for peace offering, there's two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs. That happened one tribe per day for 12 days. And you just have to read it all the way through. I think it takes like 40 minutes or something like that, half an hour to listen to it. Or you could just sort of scan through this chart. At the bottom, <coughs> we see that you see the totals. And in, in, the, in the scriptures, we get all of the totals. Now, what I want you to notice is the numbers. So silver, 12, 12, 24,000. It's a derivative of 12, I think. Then you have gold, 12 gold dishes and weighing 120 shekels. Then you have 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs for a burnt offering. 36 grain offerings, 12 male goats for sin offerings. So you see the pattern here? Twelves all the way across. And then we get over here to the peace offering, and you got 24 bulls, 60 rams, 60 male goats, 60 male lambs. What I love about this, there is a theological point here. Once we deal with atonement, once we deal with sin, once we deal with the fact that you're going to be devoted to me, let's have a party. Fellowship with God. The, the goal is God enjoying fellowship with his people. Because the number of peace offerings, remember, remember what a peace offering is. A peace offering is symbolically sitting down at the table with God and eating. So this is glorious. God's goal here is to establish the, the altar prim primarily as a place of peace and fellowship, not as a place of sin and atonement. Now you need the sin and atonement, the atonement for sin in order to get to the peace, but he wants the altar to be the place of reconciliation. Yeah, the Lord's table, I would say, is a peace offering. Yes. I, I would make that point. And remember, the bronze altar is fulfilled by the cross of Christ. All the sacrifices that take place on the, on the bronze altar, they are all fulfilled on the cross. So this doesn't make for very nice reading until you realize that God is making a big deal of this in the book of Numbers because he wants us to make a big deal of the cross in the gospel. Yes, the priests and the people who bring it. Yeah, so. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, big party. And, and so there was not enough. There, I mean, that would make a lot, of, a lot of meat. Two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs. Probably wouldn't feed everyone in the tribe, but all of the leadership is probably there. Because there's a lot of meat. All the people, yeah. So the point is that the altar where, that makes atonement is the place of reconciliation and fellowship between God and man. There, there's theology in the numbers. Got to keep moving. We're not going fast enough. Consecration of the lampstand. The lampstand, it comes up again because, again, the lampstand represents God's presence. The showbread represents the people. And the emphasis here in the consecration is not on the showbread, it's on the lampstand. The emphasis is on, I'm present with you. And the, yeah, the showbread or the bread of presence, same thing. D- depends what commentary you're reading or what translation, yeah. So just to remind you, so on the north side, there's a table with 12 loaves of bread that's the bread of presence because it's in the presence of God, the lampstand, or it's the showbread, which is before the presence of God. So it's on the north table. On the southern part of the tent, you have the candelabra and seven lamps. When you get into into Revelation, I saw the the, the seven spirits of God. It's... It's probably a symbolic number meaning the fullness of God's presence. The candelabra in the tabernacle is typological. You get into the throne room of God and the Holy Spirit is there in all his fullness. And then they consecrate the Levites. And so you have water, shaving, uh, and blood rituals. And then all of Israel comes and lays their hands on them and says, you're going to mediate this for us. So it's establishing the full priesthood. Whereas in Leviticus, it was just the high priest and his family. Now we have the Levites being set apart for this mediatorial work. All right, now we go to the Passover um, and the trumpet. So this is chapters 9 and 10. At the beginning of chapter 9, it it just says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, just reminds us, this is an amazing thing. God, God, we've been consecrating the tabernacle, and the glory of God has filled the tabernacle, and we've got, we're camped all around the tabernacle. God is there, and we are there, and it's good. It's good. It it should make us excited. That's what this is about. And then we come to the anniversary of the Passover and, and they celebrate the Passover, we were told. And then there were some people who were ceremonially unclean and they didn't get to celebrate the Passover. And they, they said, I wanted to celebrate this. And then, and then they thought about, well, there's going to be years where somebody might be away on, on, on a business trip somewhere and they're going to miss out on the Passover. So here, God says, I don't want anyone to miss out. And if you're not able to celebrate the Passover for a legitimate reason, you can celebrate it the month later. It's a, it's a provision because, again, the emphasis, the theological emphasis is, remember, we're, we're in fellowship together. I've delivered you from sin. I want you to remember that. I want you to celebrate. I want you to be glad about it. So, so this view of God, although we lose it in all of the numbers, is just God wanting to be near his people and wanting his people to want to be near him. And that's what this Passover is all about. It also reminds us it's a temporal marker that a year has passed. They've been at Mount Sinai for just a little under a year. And then the silver trumpets, just some statistics about how to use the trumpets to gather people. Um, you, do, you can gather the leaders or all the people, or you, can, you use the trumpets to declare war and to celebrate feasts. So that becomes really important. And I have to tell you, I've been in um, 
two Muslim countries in the last year, and there's something nice about the Muslim call to prayer. It's a bit eerie because I'm not a Muslim and I know that it's demonic, but there's something about this call to prayer that goes out into the open air that, I don't know, have we lost something with it? Like, we used to have church bells. We don't have that anymore. It's just kind of, I don't know. But here you have these trumpets. There's something about a public sound declaration of your relationship with God that I think is nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think in Canada, we, we have allowed ourselves to privatize our, our faith. And it, I think that's too bad. All right, moving on. So now we're going to leave Mount Sinai. We've been at Mount Sinai since when? Exodus what? Nineteen? Is that right? Exodus nineteen to Numbers ten. We're at Mount Sinai. That's that's the central chunk of the tab, of, of the Torah, and now we're leaving Mount Sinai. That's significant, right? Because Mount Sinai is where God entered into covenant with His people, and now the journey begins, and it starts immediately with grumbling. They're grumbling about their food. They wish they could just go back. Why did you bring us out here so that we would die and we hate this food? Ma, 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 ma. Yeah, all this man, I'm so tired of it. It's only been a year, 39 to go, right? Why? That's so offensive to God because remember, God is living in this typological world and Jesus in John 6 makes it very plain. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. This is Jesus talking. He, he preaches in Capernaum. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Here now they want the manna. They don't realize that the manna was just a picture of Christ. The, the bread of life that comes down from heaven from the Father to sustain us. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the question. We can point the finger and say, how could they grumble about their food? Is Jesus Christ enough for us? Or do we grumble about our jobs, about our clothing, about our cars, about our houses about our bank accounts about our blog, like list whatever like honestly if you had a tape recorder around your neck how much grumbling would get recorded right and here's the thing they're grumbling about manna and the manna is just a picture of Christ we have Christ is he not enough Oh, I, I, I love Christ. I, I want Christ. But if I could just get this job, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just have this much money, if I could just get this, then I'd be happy. Take me back to Egypt. Jesus isn't enough. That's frightening. And I, let me just, I'll, I'll say myself, I, I'm guilty of this. 
Jesus should be enough. He, he's all we need. Take everything out of my life. I have Christ. That's why it was so offensive to God. They're not just grumbling about food. They're grumbling about the typological picture of Jesus Christ, the true bread that comes down from the Father. And then Moses is burning out, and God establishes a really helpful little rule here about the plurality of leadership. You can't, no man is meant to lead alone. So this is directly translated to the church. You should never have a pastor-led church. If you leave this church uh, for whatever reason and you go to find another church, your first question is, who's leading this church? If the answer is the pastor, go and keep looking. It's just a terrible model. You need a plurality of leadership. Now, in, in the typological picture here, Moses is a type of Christ in his headship over Israel, and the 70 elders are the plurality of, of elders underneath Christ or Moses. So Moses is a bit of a unique figure, but the, the, the point of plurality of leadership, of eldership, is established here in Numbers. And remember, this is for the wilderness generation. We're the wilderness generation. So God didn't establish this in Exodus. He establishes it in Numbers because this is for us. Aaron and Miriam uh, opposed their brother. Anyone remember why they opposed him? Hayden? He married a Cushite woman. Now, we don't get a lot of detail. What happened to Zipporah? I know that he tried to send her back to dad, and then dad brought her back, so maybe she was difficult. Dad didn't want her. Moses didn't want her. Or the other way to read that is Moses wanted to protect her, and he knew it was going to be a hard journey filled with peril. So maybe he sent her back to dad because he loved her, but dad said, no, 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 you can keep her. That's an exodus. But now we have Moses marrying a Cushite woman. Personally, I'm, I tend to think that Aaron and Miriam were right. That Moses sinned in marrying this Cushite woman. But where they were wrong is that doesn't mean that Moses is disqualified. He's God's man. And so Miriam gets leprosy and God makes an example of them. The problem is these were the three most powerful people in the wilderness. You, you have a rupture in this leadership and then all of a sudden, quite literally, all hell is going to break loose among the rank and file, which we're going to see is happening. The worst kind of disunity in the church is disunity among the leaders. And there probably was a way to rebuke Moses privately about his Cushite wife. So th this is another principle for leadership. No leader is perfect. All leaders have sin. If you can deal with the sin, if it's not a sin that disqualifies, I mean, I would say if I went and got a Cushite wife, I'd be disqualified. But in this context, it wasn't a disqualifying sin. They should have dealt with it privately, but they aired their grievances with the whole congregation. So solidarity among the leadership there. So that all happened on the journey. It was eventful. They finally get to Paran. Probably Moses was so glad to be there. And this classic story of sending out the spies. I think we can go over this fairly quickly. Uh, this was just discovered this year in Hukok in uh, Israel. It's a mosaic on the floor of a synagogue with uh, this picture of two spies carrying the grapes. Remember what's going on here. So Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land. They go in and they check it out. And they're like, this is an amazing place. There's no way we can take it. Except two say, oh yeah, we can. 
God, God can do what he promised. And then they bring back this amazing cluster of fruit. What is that? That's like me standing up and telling you how good the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. Remember, live in the typological world. Th those grapes are, are a picture of the glories of our eternal future. They're in the wilderness. You ever watch Survivor and like, they've been 14 days without food and out comes a cheeseburger and they fall down? Well, imagine being in the wilderness and you're eating manna and all of a sudden you get all this grapes and fruit and produce. Like, yes, let's go and get it. But they lack faith. Now, let me ask you. We, we complain about them or we, we say they're, they're idiots. They haven't they seen what God has done? But you have to remember they're, they're mostly unarmed. They're not that big of an army. And we find out that like fortified cities, big armies, and they're afraid to go in. Now, typologically, yeah, their lack of faith, though, is paralleled by people who say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I think he's a good moral teacher or whatever. I, maybe he came back from the dead, but I don't believe that God can raise me from the dead. I don't believe that God's going to resurrect this universe in glory. I don't, I don't think that I'm going to live forever with infinite number of zeros after my age. The promise is that God has given to us are paralleled by the promise of the promised land here. So the question is, do you believe it? Because if you don't believe that God can raise you from the dead, don't expect to go into the eternal promised land. Ten didn't believe, two did believe. If you believe that you will be raised from the dead, then you will sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you don't believe that God can raise you from the dead, you won't. It's very instructive for us. Will or will he not take us into the promised land? Can he do it? Then we come to more laws. Sacrifices in the promised land. Un laws for unintentional sins. A case law about a Sabbath breaker. Laws about tassels on garments. Don't have time to get into any of that, but I just want to note that it's there. This is what makes it hard. Like You have all these laws sprinkled in. And then the rebellion. Remember, Aaron and Miriam, that was one thing. But now that has, that has given some boldness to some other people who are not too fond of the leadership. Now, remember, this was written down for us. One of the great heartaches in the book of Numbers is how many times the leadership is opposed. God hates it, by the way, when... Israel opposes the leadership that he put in place. And yet, how many local churches do you know where people just complain and rebel against the leadership of their local church? So this picture between Moses and Korah, this is Korah's rebellion, is played out every day all over the world in countless local churches. It's even happened here. That's what Korah is saying to Moses. And what's the answer? God exalted me. So, this is awkward, right? Because I'm, I'm the shepherd of this church, and now I'm telling you how much God hates insurrection. But tell me that I'm wrong from the scriptures. What happened? Well, the earth swallowed up everyone in Korah's rebellion. 
And what's frightening, like honestly, I, I can honestly tell you this, the people who rebel against me, or the le- not just me personally, but the elders of this church, or the elders of any local church, I'm afraid for them eternally. Because it just doesn't flow with what God wants from his people. Now, does this mean that Moses was always right? Well, no. Uh, but God gets to deal with his leaders, not, not the people that God has entrusted to those leaders. Now, this is hard for us because we live in a Western liberal democracy where it's our job to oppose the leaders that God has put over us. But show me in Scripture where that's our job. The rebellion is, is, seems like it should be over, but there's a second group who says, well, Korah got swallowed up, but we still don't think that Aaron should be leading. And so God says, fine now. Every, every tribe pick a leader. Every leader, take a staff, put it in the tent of meeting. I will show you who I've picked. And in the morning, Aaron's staff had budded with an almond. The worst kind of insurrection is a rebellion against our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And people do that all of the time in the local churches. I know the Bible says this, but we are not going to win anyone in our culture if we follow what the Bible says on this point. Therefore, I'm sorry, King Jesus, my great high priest, I am not going to follow you on that. But this rod that blossomed is so awesome because the, the, the staff itself is a dead piece of wood that God brings life out of. And so God says, no, 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 hold on. Before you start saying yes or no to what Jesus has established in the church through the Scriptures, just know that it's Jesus that I've raised from the dead. Do you want to you you contend with him to win some people in your culture? It's so stupid. Go with the one who's been resurrected. He's the great high priest. So on one level, it's about the under-shepherds. On the other level, it's about rebelling against Jesus himself. And that's the more serious. Now, obviously, there's scriptural mechanisms to deal with sin among elders. 1 Timothy 5. If an elder sins, rebuke him in front of everybody and kick him out of the church. So I'm not saying that elders are above the law in the church. But make sure that there's like a good reason to oppose. This is what Jude says about it. Jude 8 to 13, in like manner, these people, meaning people who are opposing God's established leadership, also relying on their dreams, false teachers, false leaders, they defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones, that is the saints that God has put in place. But when the archangel Michael, blah, 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 I shouldn't say that about scripture, moving down, um, Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not, uh, do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, imagine talking to someone in the church this way, but this is Jude speaking to people in the church this way. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, that is, they were jealous of the leadership of the church. They wanted to kill them or replace them. And they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. That is, they, they would take, they just wanted to rise up for their own gain. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. That is, when you're taking communion, there's people in your church trying to overthrow the leadership of your church. You need to kick them out of the church because they're going to shipwreck you. They're hidden reefs at your love feast, your communion table. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Pretty serious warnings about rebellion in the local church. And Jude goes back to the book of Numbers to make his point. Korah and Balaam, and then Genesis with Cain. I, I make this point, I think it's a good time because we don't have any of this happening in our church, but you just need to know what the Bible says about the hierarchy of leadership in the local church. It's, God d- didn't mince words through Numbers or through Jude. Okay, moving on. More laws, laws about purification in chapter 19. Then we're on a journey again. We leave Paran, and we find out that Miriam and Aaron die. That's sobering. They're two leaders, and on this journey they die. It's kind of an ominous note. And then we find out that Moses is going to die in the wilderness too. Like, that's all back to back. Miriam dies, Aaron dies, Moses is going to die because he strikes the rock. Well, what's the big deal about striking the rock anyway? Yeah, he was told to speak to the rock. The rock, I think we have to remember, God is living this typological reality. Paul says the rock that followed them was Christ, and whether it was an actual rock that followed them or every time the rock gave water, it was Christ giving life-giving water. And so it's a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. It's like that spear that went into Christ's side. Now I'm not, I don't for a minute think that this is uh, directly correlated. This is going a little too far. But it's, the fact is, it's as if he's striking Christ. Yeah, right. He, he's forgotten that he's a servant of the Most High God and he's, he's now on the level of God. Exactly. Yeah. It's good. And this is a really important counterbalance to Korah's rebellion. The people in the local church are called to submit to God's ordained leadership. And the leaders have to be patient with the people they're leading. They can never, never blur the line between Christ and themselves. They serve Christ. They're, they're a part of the problem themselves. They, they need to, to exercise love and patience and kindness. So you see it perfectly balanced here between the two. Yeah. Really good, yeah. So it, you be very careful. You're, you're to deliver the word of God and implement the word of God and you're not allowed to to alter it in any way. It might have been a small thing for us, speak to the rock, strike the rock, but to God it's a big difference. I got to keep going, Yosef, because I'm out of time. I 
Yeah, right. So, but he didn't do what God asked him to do. And so the bigger picture is if you're leading the people on behalf of God, you have to follow exactly the word of God. Which is scary as a leader, like I'll tell you. This is very frightening. Then the people grumble about food and water again, right? And, they, and food and water, that's any kind of grumbling you have where Jesus isn't enough for you, that's what this is about. And so what does God do? He sends fiery serpents in to bite them and kill them. And then Moses intercedes for them. He says, isn't there anything that we can do? Like, do you have to kill all these people? And God says, well, take a snake, make it a, make it a bronze, or it might be dip it in bronze and put it up on a pole. And the whole point is the very thing that was killing the people because of their, their grumbling, they had to look to the very thing that was killing them in order to be healed. Likewise, when we look to the cross, we have to see the very thing that's killing us, which is our own sin, our own grumbling, and be healed. We have to recognize that we need to be crucified with Christ. That's what this is a picture of. And it's just amazing how this prefigures Christ. And the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. But the two verses before it come back to this passage in Numbers. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, whoever looks to him. And what, what are we supposed to see when we look to Jesus by faith on the cross? Our sin that is killing us is what we're supposed to see. And a recognition that he had to die because of our sin. And if we could acknowledge that, we'll be healed and we'll be given eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So yes, you will perish because of your sin, but if you can see your sin in Christ on the cross, you will be healed and you will live. And this is happening in the wilderness. So I, I have to believe that there are people in the visible church that are coming to faith while on journey through the preaching of the word. Then we get a, a number of military victories, and these are important because it shows us territory that uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh will take outside of the promised land. They defeat Ered, the king of Sihon, and the king, king Og of Bashan. That's in that travel section. Now we come to Moab, and although that looks like a lot, I think we don't have that much left. Balak and Balaam, this is really important if we're going to understand um, God's relationship with his people in the wilderness, but then also with the church. Balak is a king who wants a little divine help before he tries to defeat Israel. He sees that they're a powerful group. They, they've just defeated Sihon and Og and Arad, and so he's a little bit nervous, and so he, he hires this prophetic medicine man type guy, Balaam. He says, I want you to curse them, and after you curse them, then I'll, we'll go and defeat them. So Balaam says, yeah, I'd love the money, but I can only say what God tells me to say. But yeah, I want the money. So sure, he tries four times, and every time he tries to curse them, he ends up blessing them. And we get to the fourth one here, and he, see, he says here, I see him, him singular. Who? Who does Balaam see? We're, we're not told. But I don't see him now. He's not living down there now. But I see a man who's not alive now. I behold him, but he's not near. He's not here now. And this is who he is. He's a star that shall come out of Jacob. 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This is a prophecy of Jesus. I, I see a star, a man who will come from Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. We know that the scepter belongs to Judah, and he's going to crush the forehead. That reminds us of what? Genesis 3.15. So it's crushing Moab because Moab is a pawn of the devil. Remember I told you that this is a story of the children of the serpent and the children of the woman? So Moab falls on the side of the serpent and this one falls on the side of the woman. And so in crushing Moab, he crushes Satan. So Balaam prophesies of the Christ when he's trying to curse Israel. So what we need to learn about Balaam, and this is what makes him so important, like that, this is interesting, the, the whole prophecy and the blessings, but what's really important, more than that, is this. For 20 chapters, it looks like God just hates his people, which he doesn't, but it looks like that to us. He's just disciplining them like, tens of thousands are, are dying in his discipline. So the book of Numbers is all about divine discipline and warnings and the grumbling of the people. It's a bad relationship between God and the people. And you might be tempted to ask the question like, does God even love them? Is this covenant going to work? And what we find out here is if we can just step outside of the camp, we see that although there's a lot of divine discipline which is pretty dirty and messy, it has to be contextualized within divine blessing. That for all of the discipline that is resulting in like Korah's rebellion being swallowed up by the earth and the fiery serpents that are killing people and we're going to find another plague that kills 24,000. So tens of thousands and, and the whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. Nevertheless, that doesn't um, or undo God's divine blessing. Same with the church. You're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, I've gone through times where I wonder, like, God, seriously, the church is your solution to the problems of the world? And I'm not putting that on you. I, like, I put it on myself. And I just look around at the church broadly. Not, this is not about you or South Shore. But I'm like, the church, just do church history. Like, we've just made a mess of things over the last 2,000 years. And the gates of hell won't prevail against you. Yeah, because we're in the wilderness. Yeah, we're making a lot of mistakes. We're grumbling, and God is disciplining us, and, and it's ugly, and, and, and it's not always working out the way we want it to, and yet the divine blessing holds. The church will prevail. The church will win. The devil cannot take us down. And, and you can have whoever you want trying to curse the church. The only thing that, that anyone trying to curse the church can do is end up blessing the church for all of our problems internally. And there's a lot of them in, in church history. None of our internal problems and how God has dealt with us internally has lifted what Jesus said, that he's going to build his church. And we will prevail over and against the world. So Balaam becomes really important on the typological level as we're going through the book of Numbers. And then we have, right after this, bl the bl blessing, fourfold blessing, 
we have apostasy at Peor. <laughs> Israelite men start sleeping with all these Moabite women and worshiping their gods. Like, come on. That happens in the church, doesn't it? Don't we? Well, you're a group of men, and whoever's listening to this group of men, don't we whore ourselves out after the pleasures of the world? We should be God's people. But, yeah, but iPhones are pretty awesome. I want one. I have one. Oh, I have a Samsung. I, and I want a little more gold. And I want a little bigger house. And I, I, want, I want eternal life, but I also want what Moab, what Moab has on offer. I want that, that, that porn addiction. I want whatever. So before we're like, oh, what idiots. Like apostasy at Peor, didn't they learn nothing from the golden calf? Like this is the history of the church. And what we find out later in Numbers 31 is that this was Balaam's idea. He couldn't curse the people. So what he did was he, he talked to the leader of Moab and said, just send your women down there and God will discipline them for you. You don't need a curse from me. Just get God to discipline them. This is how the devil works. The devil can't curse us. The devil can't oppress us. The devil can't do anything to us. But what the devil can do is ensnare us to the fleeting pleasures of this world which will require God to discipline us from the inside. Judgment begins at the household of God. So just be aware, this is in the devil's playbook. And 24,000 men died. 2,000 per tribe. I don't know it was put out that way, but that number, I think, is significant. God sent a plague to kill them. And how did the plague end? Church discipline. Phineas runs in with a sword. It's, it's not pretty. And while there's an Israelite man in the middle of sexual intimacy with a woman, he takes a spear and he thrusts it through both of their bellies. And God says, good. Good. Now the discipline's over. Well done, Phineas. It's church discipline. It's not pretty. Nobody wants to toss somebody out of the church. But discipline will continue to happen. The church won't flourish as long as you allow your men to sleep with Moabite women, typologically speaking. So church discipline is important for the health of the church. And I think it's intentionally graphic. If Phineas didn't do that, how many people would have died in the plague? Do you know some churches die, like totally die? Jesus removes the lampstand because the elders are, don't have the courage to exercise church discipline. Did you want to say something, Jay? Yeah, everyone, it just keeps going. Yeah, right on. All right, got to keep moving. Sobering, right, when you see that this is about us? Then there's this second census. Uh, there's a typo there. The red is the Exodus generation. 
So look at the numbers. Look at how, okay, all, all of these plagues, all of this discipline, everyone's going to die. Only two guys from the Exodus generation get to go in. But look at how good God is. We're just down 1,800 people. God replaces the whole generation, more or less. That's awesome. That's grace upon grace. So yeah, not everyone makes it in, but wow. You're still going into the land with some two million people. So again, there's some theology in the numbers there. And then tribe for tribe, you can see the different numbers. So, okay, I should say this. We, are, we live in an individualistic society, right, where it's the individual that matters. If you're in a co communal worldview, right? You know what I mean? A corporate worldview. So the red is the Exodus generation. It's a typo. Red is Exodus generation. If you're thinking corporately, you're doing all right. So we, Western North Americans, we say, wow, 600,000 people didn't make it. The ancient audience says, wow, 600,000 people made it. You see the difference there? More laws. We're out of time, so I'm just going to go through them. And then uh, a, a campaign over Midian and settling in the east of the Jordan. So what you have here is a foreshadowing of the book of Joshua. This is how it's going to work. You're going to go in, you're going to destroy all the people, and God's going to give you the land. So look at all of the, the plunder that they got from the Midianites. And then it shows how the army gets half, the people get half, and the Levites get a portion. That's how God's going to work. It's not just the army that gets the plunder. It's shared democratically. So again, there's theology in that. We win together, we lose together. And then over here, we have Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. who says, we would like to live on the other side of the Jordan. So if you would give us our land, we'll fight with you in the conquest, and then we'll settle over here. I don't know the deep theology of this, but I think it, it's not good. It's, I think typologically, these are Christians that are just satisfied with this world. Like, fine. Like, I, I don't need the promised land. I just want the benefits of being a Christian in this life. Right. And then they say that they will go in, but yeah, there is that accusation. But remember, the Jordan River typologically is the end of the age, and Joshua, Jesus, takes us into the eternal promised land. So these two and a half tribes, I think, proportionately, are, are those Christians who are just, they're Christians just for this life. Yeah, maybe prosperity gospel. Yeah, they, they don't get into the Jordan River or past the Jordan River. into the, And the promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. So I just think these guys have got it wrong. They, they, they settled for the here and now. They, they saw, well, this is good now. Why go through any more trouble to get into the promised land? And I think that's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, oh yeah, that's true. They built fortified cities because they had a bunch of stuff. Yeah, so... It's not good. Now we look back 
and you get, this is not very fun reading, but this is quite an itinerary, right? They went from this place to that place. If you think of those poor Levites setting up the tabernacle, taking down the tabernacle, setting up the tabernacle. You know, and they're traveling around for 40 years. So there's that whole chapter, chapter 33, looking back. And then looking forward, go in, take the land. And now we're right ready on a plot level. And the book of Deuteronomy is just a series of sermons on the eve of Israel taking the land. Not bad, three minutes over. Let me pray and then you can go. And then if anyone wants to stick around and ask questions, I'd love to talk. God, I thank you so much for the book of Numbers. It's, it's amazing what you've, what you've preserved for us and that you, had, you wrote it all down for us on whom the end of the ages has come. As we think through these things, I pray that you would help us to take seriously the warnings and the promises in the book of Numbers. We are in the wilderness and it's not easy. But I pray for, for us that we would all make it. I pray that we would not fall, that we would be like Caleb and Joshua. I pray that you would help us to be faithful until the end. Help us to, to cross with the wilderness generation into the eternal promised land that you've promised. And we wait for Joshua, our Christ, to come and lead us in. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.